My name is Justin. I'm one of the leaders here. If you do not know me, it's good to see everybody today. We are continuing in our series on sonship, where we are revisiting sonship. We've been looking uh, primarily at Luke 15 and the tale of the two lost sons and how we relate to God. Do we relate primarily to God as him being our father and we are his children? Or do we tend to have these other mindsets and how we relate to God, whether that's the mindset of the elder son in the parable that was that of God is the employer, God is the master, and we are basically his slaves. We just do what he says. We are quote unquote obedient, but our heart is not necessarily in it. Or do we go the other way, the way of the younger son, the mindset that basically says one way or another that God is dead, that God doesn't exist or that God has abandoned us. So we'll take all the goodness, all the principles, all the inheritance, and we'll go and do our own thing. And regardless if it's before we come to know Christ or even after we come to know Christ, these are two ways that we are tempted to think about God and to think about ourselves. And so uh, a two-week series turned into a three-week series, which now turned into a four-week series. And so this is, uh, this is part three. And it has to do with this word adoption or this word sonship that shows up in the New Testament a handful of times. And so just to catch everybody up uh, from a couple of weeks ago, what is sonship? Sonship is a gift from God that talks about our identity. And it's important to see sonship or this adoption as a gift. It is not something that we earn, but it's because of the love and the mercy of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit that this thing has taken place. And we are legitimate sons and daughters because of Jesus. That it's not that we have to think about our legitimacy. Again, we, but we get adopted in the family, but then again, we still run around like slaves or we run around like orphans where we have to prove something to God in order for him to love us. That is not the case. Our legitimacy as children of God is based in the work and the person of Jesus. And as being part of a household, we don't just sit in the household and play Wii, although I do like playing Wii. is a video game, by the way, if you didn't know what that was. That might be a weird reference if I just say that. Uh, where we just have fun in our household and do our own thing. Uh, intimacy within a household is important, but there's also this family mission that we're called to, that God is looking to redeem and recreate all of the earth and to call all to his side. And so we participate in the family mission of God. And Barry, I might need you. My clicker's not working. Oh, I wish it was working. Okay, I'm going to have to tell you when to click then. Uh, click again. Yeah, so this is the icon that we've been looking at. I just want us to reference uh, the hands this time as we look at the icon. This is the part of the parable of the prodigal sons that has to do with which brother, the elder or the younger? The younger. And do you notice the hands here of the, of, the, of the younger? What is he doing? One hand is kind of up like this, and the other hand is reaching out to receive. Or maybe a better word would be to take. We remember how uh, the younger son wanted to take the inheritance, basically saying, dad, you're dead. Give me your stuff, and I'm going to go do what I want. But we also see the father or Jesus in this picture do this symbol. If you want to try to do it, you take your, what is this, your ring finger and your thumb. And this is a symbol that uh, I'll tell you what it means in a little bit. But we see the father extending this to the younger son. Go to the, the next slide, Barry. Now, who's, if it's not the younger son, which son is this? The elder son. And now here we also see kind of, this is almost like a 90s reference, which it isn't obviously, but talk to the hand. 
remember that from the 90s, talk to the hand because the ears aren't listening. I doubt that's what it meant in, in this icon. But it is interesting that it's like, no, I don't want to hear it. And his other hand is like gone. I don't even know where his other, I don't know if it's like this thing of hiding something from the father or like not wanting to hear him. And also I'm not going to extend any kind of uh, grace towards you and listening to you. And again, the father or Jesus or the son is doing this symbol. And uh, you can almost, like when I first saw this, I was like, is Jesus being vulgar towards the son? It almost looks like some kind of Italian, like, hey, he's not doing that at all. So what this symbol means, uh, go to the next slide, Barry. So this is, the, this is the symbol if you want to try it. Now, depending on the era of art and of icons, it means something slightly different. But this, this symbol, when you see people or God or Jesus or the Father use it, it means three things. One, it means the divinity and the humanity of Christ coming together as one. So that's why these two fingers are touching. And then it also represents the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I don't know why the Holy Spirit's like off to the side a little bit, but they're, they're all one. So it's a symbol of the Trinity. And then also, um, uh, it's, it can also, if you hold it just right, it can kind of sign language some Greek symbols, which end up spelling Jesus Christ. The, the first letter of Jesus, the last letter of Jesus, the first letter of Christ, the last letter of Christ, I believe is how it is. And so it was also a symbol to say Jesus Christ, the name above all names. So in this picture, even though the younger son is saying, uh, give me your stuff, give me my inheritance and I'm off. And the older son is like, talk to the hand. I don't want to hear anything you're going to say about welcoming the son back. In both instances, the father is blessing the son. The father is bringing a reference to the humanity and the divinity of Christ, of this communal element of Christianity that is father, son, and Holy Spirit, and to the name that is above all names, which is Jesus. And so we have the give me stuff. I'm going to take this, talk to the hand. But the most important use of hands in the icon is the centerpiece, which Barry, the next one, which the very centerpiece of the icon is an embrace where God's arms, where Jesus's arms are around the sinner that has repented, that wanted to come back even as a slave, but the father wouldn't allow that. It's like, you are not a slave. You are my son. We're going to sacrifice. We're going to celebrate. I'm going to give you a ring. I'm going to give you sandals because in that day, sandals represented you were part of the household. Slaves didn't wear sandals, but sons wore sandals. And I'm going to clothe you in the finest garment that I have. I'm going to embrace you in my arms. So today, as we continue to think about this idea of sonship, I have three quick storylines and in parallel to the lost sons and the love of the father. And so we're going to take a moment to flip through scripture. I will give you references if you want to follow along, or you can just listen to me talk because I know I'm so enthralling. Um, but we're going to talk about the brother who runs and the brother who resents and the brother who ultimately redeems. And we're going to start in the book of Jonah, the book of Jonah. Barry, put the next slide up. Next. Great. Father God, we thank you for your word towards us. And we ask that as we remember these stories in scripture, as we remember the truth of who you are, that you would, um, that you would stimulate our imaginations and our hearts and worship towards you, God, and worship towards you, Son, and worship towards you, Holy Spirit. And help us to take these stories and uh, also make them our own. 
where it's, we're not the same as Jonah, we're not the same as Jesus, but how are we supposed to carry your grace and truth in our lives, God? And where do we need to be in a place of repentance and confession as we grow closer um, into the people you call us to be? We pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, Next slide. Next slide. So the first person I want to talk about or just want to remind us about is Jonah, one of the most famous prophets because there's some weird fish stuff that happens in there that's a miracle to some degree. And this overlaps with the younger son, specifically with the concept of running away. Just like the younger son run away in Jonah chapters one and two, we have a prophet that runs away. Many of us would like to hear the word of God and be like, God, would you please speak to me and give me a word? And yet the thing here is that God speaks directly to Jonah. And does he receive it? He's like, yeah, I'm going to do whatever you say. No. That makes me wonder, like, how many of us are like, God, give me a distinct word. And is it God's grace that he doesn't always give us a distinct word? Because it might lead towards our rebellion or our disobedience in there. So God speaks to Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach that this great city is going to fall. And Jonah's like, no, not doing that. So he's in Philly. Not really. Just follow along. He's in Philly. God tells him to go to San Francisco to preach to San Francisco. What does Jonah do? He hops on a boat down in Philly and he heads towards London. He heads in the exact opposite way of where he's supposed to go. He's down in the lower parts of the ship. And what is he doing? He's sleeping. He's asleep. He's either in a place of rest or in a place of being so um, amped up on running away that he's just exhausted. And the storm comes and the storm is uh, tossing and turning this boat over and over again. The pagan sailors that are on there is like, what is going on? This is not just some kind of normal storm. So they start to inquire of their gods. And they're like, what is going on? Whose fault is this that this storm is trying to overtake us? They go down to the lower parts of the ship. They say, Jonah, wake up. We need you to be in on this too. Talk to your God. What's going on with the storm? They find out that it's the, the, the faithful prophet, so to speak, the prophet of Yahweh that is the problem on this pagan ship. And that it's because he is fleeing from the presence of the Lord that this disaster is coming upon all of them. So they do this thing where they cast the lots. They're like, oh, it's your fault. What are we going to do? Jonah, maybe in an act of heroism, but I question that is like, you just need to throw me over. That is what's going to happen. Uh, make sure that the storm calms down and that everything is going to be all right. The pagans are like, no, we can't do that. Let's keep praying and let's try to keep, you know, pushing through this storm, but it doesn't work. And so Jonah kind of could be seen as a hero here, but you have to remember why did the storm come in the first place? Because of his disobedience. It's like the villain of the story is trying to be the hero of the story. Like I'll sacrifice myself. And maybe there was a light bulb moment there, honestly where it's just like, this is my fault. I need to take the consequences of it on and you need to throw me over. They're like, no, but eventually nothing changes. And so they're like, yes, we're going to throw you over. And they pray to the God of Israel. They pray to Yahweh. They don't pray to their pagan gods. And they say, forgive us for this. For we, We're doing this. Please don't hold it against us. Please uh, see us as innocent. We're just trying to save everybody else on board. And we're kind of listening to your prophet who says this needs to happen. And so they do this and they throw him up over the storm calms down. God sends a big fish or uh, 
maybe a whale, but let's just say a big fish. And does anybody here watch Dude Perfect, by the way? Okay, good. Got a lot of hands. Did you see the one with the giant uh, groupers yet? Those things are beasts. And I feel like that could swallow a human being. That's for sure. I'm not saying it was a grouper or, or anything like that, but I saw those things and I got scared as far as I've never been scared of a fish before. So God saves Jonah from drowning by putting him into the, 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 the center or the innards of this big fish. And there Jonah cries out. But again, this prayer of deliverance is kind of wishy-washy, not to, you know, play on words. Aha. There is this like truth that is spoken by Jonah, but in Jonah chapter two, there's never really this confession directly that he did something wrong. It's about, I, I see how like anybody who turns to false gods and to idols is going to be in trouble, but he doesn't necessarily say, God, I'm running away from you. He says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Is this true? Yeah. But yet, is there actually a heart change within Jonah? But God hears his prayers. And for one reason or another, the fish burps him up onto dry land. And so this is kind of a picture of this younger son of running away of taking the father's word, taking the inheritance of the word and just doing whatever you want of fleeing the presence of God. Cornerstone, where have you heard the word of the Lord and you've run the opposite direction? Where have you thought there's not grace here for me to do this and decided to flee from the presence of the Lord? Where have I done that in my life? So that's the first person. The second person, very next two slides. Oh, twist. The second person is actually Jonah also, but it's in chapter three and four. And this is very interesting because of the fact that we see both the younger son and the older son mentality in one person. And that's what happens to us. That at one point we can be acting like the slave, trying to do everything right, but not connected to the father. Or on the other hand, we can jump from there to being the orphan. We're like, God's dead. I'm going to do what I want to do. It doesn't really matter anyway. But in Jonah, we see him take uh, both of these mindsets to the nth degree. And so Jonah gets a second chance, as it says in the, in the text. Jonah is able to go and preach to Nineveh. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah again and say, in 40 days, Nineveh is going to be overthrown. 120,000 people plus all this cattle and livestock are going to be destroyed. And so he goes and he preaches. And what happens? The city repents. The king hears of this proclamation. They were not Yahweh fearing a nation. They had different gods, Ashur and usually, and uh, Dagon, I think was also one of their other gods. Interestingly enough, Dagon in uh, uh, iconography is actually pictured as a merman, which I think there's some kind of correlation with the fact of this God being a fish God and what happened with Jonah that there is this connection with this big fish. So I think the author was really trying to, to connect those two things together. So God relents. And after God relents, uh, Jonah gets mad. He gets angry. The king and all the people, they put on sackcloth and ashes. They lament, they repent. And this, uh, this Nineveh is not like an okay city that just needs to repent of a little bit of things. They were known in the culture as being this aggressive city that when they overtook a place, they dismembered people. They decapitated people. They put them on for display. This is like us being like, hey, I want you to go and, and preach to ISIS after they cut off heads. 
and say like, you need to relent and you need to repent and we'll forgive you and you don't have to be destroyed. This was a deep, deep enemy of uh, the, the nation of Israel and of Judah. And yet God gives them a chance to say, if you repent, if you listen to the word of Jonah, I will spare you. And he does. So Jonah is mad. He was successful, but he's mad. He's angry and he's resentful. He goes outside of the city of Nineveh. He sits on top of a hill and looks and be like, what's going to happen here? Oh, you know what's going to happen? Nothing. That justice isn't going to come. People are going to listen to me. And people are going to repent. And people are going to be forgiven for the time being. If you go ahead a couple hundred years, the book of Nahum, I believe, is the opposite story of Nineveh, where the whole city gets destroyed because they didn't repent. And so we have Jonah sitting up here. He's mad. He's in the heat. He builds this shelter. The Lord sends this plant miraculously, and it grows over, over him, and it gives him shade. And he's exceedingly glad. He was exceedingly, he thought that God sparing the people was an exceedingly evil thing for God to do. And now he's under this shade and he's getting some relief. And he's like, oh, this plant is taking care of me. This is an exceedingly good thing for me. But then God sends this worm and this worm eats the plant. And now uh, Jonah has no cover and he's in the sand. There's the scorching wind and he's hot and he's thirsty. And he's like, I just wish I would die. It's better for me to die than to stay alive. My mission, quote unquote, was successful. And that success meant mercy and forgiveness to my enemies and to the people that have killed our people for generations. This is junk. And the Lord speaks to him again. And he's like, you care so much, Jonah, about this plant that covered you and gave you some relief. And that touched your heart. And yet there's this great city of Nineveh who most of them don't know their left hand from their right hand. That I have called you to preach repentance to and that they have responded to. And yet you're here in this resentful, angry stage. Why? And so the biggest parallel between uh, Jonah 3 and 4 and the older son is that it kind of hangs on a cliffhanger. It doesn't say how Jonah actually responds at the end. It ends with God's word saying, will I not have compassion on this? And just like in the story of the prodigal son, the elder son is outside of the party and he's being invited into the celebration of those of the person that was lost and now is found. And what happens is that he doesn't want to go in. He's out there giving talk to the hand, dad. I'm not listening to what you're saying. And the parable ends there with will the elder son, the perfect son, the one that obeyed all the time, actually enter into the joy of the father. Will Jonah enter into the joy of the father for those that have repented and turned from their ways? Third person, Jesus. Next two slides. And this is about the redeeming affection of Christ. So in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus, surprise, surprise, is being questioned by um, all kinds of people, the scribes and the Pharisees. And they say to him, hey, we want to see a sign to actually know you're the Messiah. I guess exorcisms don't count as a sign. I guess the healing of people don't count as a sign. I guess the feeding of thousands of people don't count as a sign. Can you actually prove to us that you're the Messiah so we know for sure? And Jesus says this to these people. He says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. 
but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Well, what does that mean? Is there going to be a fish that comes up on land and swallows him? For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the son of man, Jesus, be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, meaning that he will die and he will be buried. The men of Nineveh, again, the the country, the nation that Jonah preached to and that repented, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And then listen to this. And behold, something greater, something better than Jonah is here. So Jonah's mission was like the success story. 120,000 people repent and a nation is saved even though there was only eight words or I don't know, Jim, five words in the Hebrew that it says that, that, that uh, Jonah preached. It's like, wow. But often the success of Jonah that overshadows the character of Jonah. And that can happen with us where we can be in this place where we're really crushing it or we're really being successful in our ministry and our vocation and our jobs. But where is our heart in connection with the father? Are we in a place of resentful anger? Are we in a place of running away and just taking God's good things and then going and doing our own thing? But we see with Jesus that something better than Jonah is here. We remember that in Jonah, where was Jonah asleep uh, in chapters one and two? In the bottom of what? In the bottom of a ship, in the bottom of a boat. There's a very similar story of Jesus being asleep in the bottom of a boat, in the bottom of a ship. Except when he's woken up and the people and the disciples are freaking out, like, what are we going to do? The storm isn't there because Jesus is sinning. The storm is there because the storm is there. And it's going to be used as a point of glory. Jesus doesn't need to get up and sacrifice himself for some wrong that he did in order to calm down the storm. He simply speaks to the storm and says, peace, be still. This, this Jesus is better than Jonah. We also remember in uh, uh, Jonah 3 and 4, Jonah's sitting outside of the city, looking at the city of Nineveh. He's resentful in his anger. We see Jesus himself in Matthew 23, looking at Jerusalem. And it's not resentful anger. How Jesus got angry. I'm not here to say Jesus never got angry. Jesus definitely got angry. He got sad, filled with uh, indignation at times. But as he's looking over this city, he's like, ah, this evil and adulterous generation that like you kill the prophets that that are sent to you and how I long to gather you into my arms like a mother hen gathers her chicks. That is the heart of God. This lament where it's not saying like, oh, it's okay. Your sin is minimal, but saying, no, you're an evil and an adulterous generation. This whole city is. But what is the desire of God? And what is the desire of Jesus? It's to gather them, to heal them, to have compassion on them, if they will turn from their ways. And so again, Jesus is better than Jonah. Now turn, in closing, turn to uh, Hebrews chapter two, if you have your Bibles. Hebrews chapter two. Joy, do you want me to give you like a five minute warning? get up. You could, you could start to come up if you wanted. I don't want you to have to rush. 
Hebrews chapter two. So now let's listen to this as, let's say it's Paul. It's probably not Paul that wrote Hebrews, but let's say it's Paul. Uh, Starting in verse five. The book of Hebrews in part is to prove to the Hebrews that uh, Christ is better than anything else that has come before. That Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than angels, the messengers of the law. Jesus is better than Joshua. Jesus is better than everything. So Hebrews chapter two, verse five. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. So who's going to rule ultimately the world? It's not going to be angels. It's actually going to be humanity and the new heavens and the new earth that was supposed to happen with Adam and Eve as our representatives. But we chose evil. We chose wickedness. We chose to do things our own way. It is not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking, It has been testified somewhere, and that somewhere is in Psalm 8. What is man? What is humanity that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels, which is actually a place of honor. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And there's two things here the writer is doing. One, that we as humanity, this is actually about us. This is about how God has given us the crown of glory in the creation, the Imago Dei, that we're not just these beasts or animals, but there's something uh, dynamically different about us as creatures on the earth, that we are made in the image of God, that we are given God's spirit, and that we are supposed to rule and help the world flourish. Did it happen that way? No. And so there's also Jesus that the author is talking about. That where we have failed as Jonah's, where we have either run away from responsibility or where we have um, maybe done the right thing outwardly, but the inward is not aligned with God's heart, that is not what is happening with Jesus. That Jesus, his actions and his heart are completely aligned. And because of that, we are then able to enter into his grace and his truth to then start to be the people of God that God intended us to be. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, right? Is the world perfect? Is the world at peace? Is Jesus actually enthroned uh, in in the world right now where everything is working according to how it should be, that there's no injustice, that there's no pain, that there's none of that? Of course not. But... We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, meaning he was made human. Namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And this is where Jesus is our substitute on the cross, that where our sin actually leads us to death. Jesus took the sin upon himself so that we could leave, so that we could live. And every single one of us in the room, I'm 99% sure of this, is going to die. And yet, those who believe in Christ will live again in the resurrection. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, because of the love of the Father that came. Verse 10, for it was fitting that he, God, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, who is Jesus, 
perfect through suffering. That when Jesus came to complete his mission, suffering was an essential part. For he, Jesus, who sanctifies, who who makes holy, and those who are sanctified, us that are being made holy, all are one. In your translation, it might say one family. It might say one origin. That's not in the Greek. It just says all are one. That we in Christ are part of the same family as Jesus. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Did you hear that? Jesus is not ashamed to call you brother or sister. Saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers and sisters. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise, O God. And again, I will put my trust in God. I will put my trust in the Father. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore, verse 14, the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things that Jesus wasn't an angel. He wasn't this other type of spiritual being. He was fully God and he was fully human. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And so here in atonement theology, this is Christus Victor, that he has conquered the evil spirits or he has disarmed them. And we're waiting for death to finally, the last enemy be put completely under his feet. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps. Jesus didn't come to help other spiritual beings, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, distinctly those of Israel, but also generically and truly all of humanity. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every aspect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That means to make sure that this justice of sin is actually taken care of. It's not just like, ah, it doesn't matter. Sin is sin, blah, blah, blah. No, that there was some kind of reconciliation through his blood and through his life. For because he, Jesus himself, has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. And so as we go to the communion table today, I want us to think about Jesus as our brother and how he is not ashamed to call you if you are in Christ, his brother or his sister. Jesus, unlike Jonah, didn't run away from a hard place. He heard the word of the Lord. He was the word of the Lord and went right into the place of suffering that was ultimately going to lead to his death, but that was ultimately going to bring many sons and daughters to glory. He is not this resentful, angry uh, middleman like Jonah was. That he has compassion and he is faithful in the service of God. That he is not ashamed to call you brothers and sisters. And so as we go to the communion table today, which is in the back, go and get your elements. And there's some gluten-free bread in the baggie if you need it. But go and get your elements and just consider this fact of like Jesus We're part of the family of God and Jesus is our brother. Is Jesus our Lord? Yeah. Is Jesus our savior and friend and all of those other things? Absolutely. But that Jesus is a brother and not a brother that wants to, that is ashamed of us, but a brother that loves us, a brother that is willing to speak hard truth to us and a brother that is ultimately willing to die for us. From uh, one of the commentaries I was reading this week, There is something repulsive about one who demeans himself to to live beneath his capabilities. 
There is something repulsive about one who demeans himself to live beneath his capabilities. Why aren't you living up to your potential? However, there is something fascinating about a creator God who demeans himself to join and lift his creatures who are incapable of lifting themselves up. He identified so fully with his inferior creatures that he could lift them up out of their fear-filled frailty and bring them to glory with him. And this is the type of God that we serve. This is the kind of power that God ultimately shows is on the cross of in grace and in truth of love and in compassion. So as the team leads us in music, if you are going to take of the bread and the cup today, go and get the bread and the cup and prepare it. It's an individual packet. And consider this Jesus who is our brother and how we are to worship him. And I'm also going to pray for us before we take. I also want you to consider these human relationships that we have that are out of sorts right now. We're talking about family a lot as far as the family of God. But there's also our friends and families, people that we are connected with. The things aren't right or things are out of sync. When I think about the idea of adoption and how beautiful it is, I know that there's also people here that have gone through adoption and it's not been great that it's been hard and it's been difficult. And it's just like, what this, this beautiful thing is of adoption. Where, why didn't this work out well? And then with our own parents, with our own, if we have uh, brothers and sisters, or if we just have friends that are like brothers and sisters, and yet there's some kind of uh, running away in that relationship or some kind of resentful anger within that relationship. How would God speak to us today as we go to the communion table about those things? So Jesus is our brother, carry that, but also ask the Holy Spirit to bring into mind one or two uh, relationships, whether historical or maybe that are happening right now, that are kind of at odds, that where there's a running away or a resentful anger, but really where God wants to work somehow, some kind of redeeming affection there.